Hi, this is Wilson, lead pastor of Renew Church OC. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Our sermon series, Psalms, the Internal Life of David, pairs narratives from David's life with Psalms that help us pull back the curtain to understand what he's feeling, how he's praying, and the way he's relating to God. LA is all about how you look and the two-second impression you give to other people. But God doesn't look at the appearance. He looks at the heart. I hope this series helps us to take our eyes off of the external and focuses our attention on developing our internal life with Jesus. All right, you guys, if I could have your attention back up here, please. If I could get your attention back up here. It's always fun to share. I always feel weird, you know, asking you guys to do this in the middle of probably telling an exciting story, but, um, <laughs> but here we must. Take your Bibles, if you would, turn to Psalm chapter 1. Take your devices. We're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 1. As you're turning there, I want to ask how many of you enjoy riddles? Would you raise your hand? Riddles. Not jokes but riddles. All right, all right. Everyone loves jokes, but there are a few really smart, really, you know, yeah, just, just with it people that love riddles, okay? And so I have a riddle for you, and I want uh, you to figure out what this is, okay? Now, some of you, you already know, because I only know like one or two riddles, okay? And so this is the one I know, and so I'm going to share this with you. If you know um, just keep silent, you know, but if you don't know, I'd like you to figure out what this riddle is all about, okay? Okay, so here's the riddle. What does everyone want but very few attain? What is it that can't be found when you look for it? What should never be our goal but will always come as a reward? Let me say it again. What does everyone want but few attain? What is it that can't be found when looked for? What should never be our goal but will always come as a reward? Now, those that know it, you know, just keep silent because I told you this already. But those of you that don't, how many of you have figured it out? Would you raise your hand? Okay. Yeah? Yeah? How about you over here? What is it? Salvation. Oh, no, it's not it. Okay. <laughs> Someone else, over here. No, no, you. Happiness. <laughs> Happiness, that's right. You've heard it before. No, or you're really smart. Okay, that's good. It's happiness. And isn't it true? Happiness is what everybody wants. Everybody strives for it. It's the world's obsession. If you ask what you want out of life, I bet you will sum it up by saying, all I want is to be happy. Whatever that means, right? People try to attain happiness through power, possessions, and prestige. You know, in 1923, the wealthiest men of their time gathered at the Edgewater Hotel in Chicago. These were the richest tycoons in America, and together they controlled more wealth than the U.S. Treasury. Their names were Arthur Cutton, the world's greatest speculator, Albert Fall, the Secretary of the Interior. Leon Frazier, president of the Bank of International Settlements. Ivar Kruger, 
the head of the world's greatest monopoly, Jesse Livermore, the greatest bear on Wall Street, Charles Schwann, the president of the largest steel company, Richard Whitney, the president of the New York Stock Exchange. These men gathered together at this place. All the power, the possessions, and prestige in one place in the United States of America. You would think that they could buy happiness and live happily ever after. But do you know what happened? Arthur Cutton died bankrupt, insolvent, and indicted by the government. Albert Fall was penniless and pardoned from prison so that he could die at home. Leon Frazier committed suicide. Ivar Kruger committed suicide. Jesse Livermore committed suicide. Charles Schwann died depressed, bankrupt, and destitute. Richard Whitney died at Osining Prison. That's the infamous Sing Sing Prison that you've heard about. You see, happiness is what many strive for, but very few attain. Do you want to know why? Because it's that second point of the riddle. Happiness cannot be found when you look for it. The book of Ecclesiastes is a whole book in the Bible dedicated to highlighting this one important truth. Solomon looked everywhere for happiness. He used every resource at his disposal to find it. And in the end, do you know what he says in Ecclesiastes? He concludes, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It is a chasing after wind. Happiness, when you search for it, you think you can grasp it, but it eludes you. Do you know why? Because that third part of the riddle, happiness should not be our ultimate goal. Do you know that happiness is a result of when we pursue the right goal? Happiness is a reward to when we pursue the right aim. Happiness is a byproduct of when we pursue the right objective. Winston Churchill put it this way. He said, down the road of responsibility, you can't help but stumble over happiness. Isn't that a beautiful way to put it? Now, Winston Churchill's idea is, as we do our duty, as we do our responsibility, happiness will stumble us. We'll get it. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but the truth is there, that it is not something that should be our ultimate goal. Rather, happiness is a result of something else. Happiness is a byproduct of something else. Happiness is a reward of pursuing another goal. You see, happiness, as you are pursuing the right goal, actually falls into your lap. And this morning, I want to encourage you with the truth that God desires for you, and that is to be happy. We have been studying the Psalms. And in the Hebrew, it literally means songs. That's how it's stated. That Psalms are divine songs that are inspired by the Lord. And today, we're studying what I like to call God's happy song, and that is in Psalm chapter 1. So let's read it. Let's find out what this happy song is all about. Psalm chapter 1 says this, Blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of mockers. Verse 2, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Verse 3, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season, 
and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. Verse 4, not so the wicked. They are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Verse 5, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Verse 6, for the, wicked know, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the happy song that we're going to look at. Now, who wrote this? Well, the human author is David. But we have been saying again and again and again about the Psalms that God is the ultimate songwriter. He is the one who divinely inspired the song. We can say that David is the instrument. He is the human instrument through which this song is played. It is his background. It is his emotions. It is his uh, uh, um, thinking in a way that's coming out. But God is superintending all of it. He is the author of it, okay? When was this written? Well, David wrote this at a time of unprecedented success as king of Israel. Scholars tell us that it was when he was fruitful on the throne, when he had conquered all of his enemies, when he was established. This is the golden age of David's rule. Now, what is this song about? Well, it's about being happy. Notice the word blessed, ashray. It is literally translated in the Hebrew to be happy. Well, you might be saying, but then why use blessed if this means happy? Why not just say happy? It's because this word has a more profound meaning than the happiness that we think of today in our 21st century. When we think of happiness, we think of a passing fancy. We think of uh, uh, a bliss that comes upon us and leaves depending on situations and circumstances. That's not what this happy is talking about. It's a deeper, stronger, greater, better reality of happiness. It truly is a blessedness. Ashray is a supreme soul-satisfying happiness that is based upon the indwelling character of God. We call this divine happiness. Now again, ashray is not some sort of superficial bliss or some sort of gleeful thrill because of a situation that has gone your way or a favorable circumstance that has fallen upon you. David wasn't happy because of his achievements or his victories or his fame or his power. David isn't penning these psalms because of his glory as a king. When you read the passage, you see that that's not what comes out. What David is teaching us is how to live out this ashray, this divine joy that permeates the chambers of our soul in its characteristics. So that's what we want to do this morning. We want to look at the characteristics about happiness. If you're taking notes, write down that this is the first point. This is the first characteristic. Happiness denies something. Write that down. Happiness denies something. The happy person is described by what they deny in their lives, by the things that they say no to. You know, I remember actually starting uh, Fellowship of Christian Athletes years and years and years ago and actually being a part of that. And I remember after our meetings, we would go out and we would want to eat, right? Uh, they had all kinds of different places, Denny's and Chili's and all kinds of places. And a lot of times these student athletes would tell me, I can't go. And I'd say, just come, you know, you don't have to eat. And they say, no, I'll be tempted to eat, I'm not gonna go. 
And I would ask them, and they say, well, you know, I'm a wrestler, and I have a meet, and I have to cut, you know, cut a weight, and so I can't go with you, or else I'm going to eat, I'm going to gain weight, right? Or I'd have a swimmer tell me, you know, I have a meet, and I just can't be tempted with pancakes right now. I can't be tempted to go eat things. I need to deny myself in order to do well in this meet. What were they saying? They were saying in order to be happy, right, in order to be really happy, I have to restrict myself from these things. I remember being campus pastor at UCLA, and I remember after our meetings, we would want to go out to Fatburger or somewhere like that and all gather together. And there are many times that a UCLA student would tell me, you know what, uh, it's Wednesday right now, Friday I have an exam, I have to go home and study. And I'd tell them, you have two days, man, you can go. And they say, no, I have to study, I have to prepare myself, right, because I need to do well. I mean, these are UCLA students. That's how they think, right? If I did that at Biola, which I was campus pastor at Biola, they would all go, right? I love Biola, by the way. But these were UCLA students. They were saying, in order to be happy, I need to restrict, I need to deny. And we know that, don't we? We know that in the physical world. But you know, in the spiritual world, that matters as well. What does a child of God need to deny in their lives in order to be happy? Let's look in verse 1. It says, Ashrei, oh, how supremely happy is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of mockers. In order to be happy, we must say no to walking in the counsel of the wicked, standing in the sinner's way, sitting in the seat of mockers. Now, as you're taking notes, you're thinking, wow, that's a lot to remember. Do you know that these three negatives can de be defined with one word. If you're taking notes, I'll give you this one word. It'll, it'll uh, summarize all of it. You know what it's called? Worldliness. Worldliness. You know, I want you to do this. Um, I want you to look at 1 John chapter 2. I don't usually do this. When, I, when I'm on a passage, I usually stay on that passage. But I want to compare, and, and I want us to, to understand this. This is a really powerful truth. And so I want you to look at the New Testament at 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. Okay, 1 John chapter 2, it's going to go with Psalm chapter 1. This is what the Word of God says in 1 John 2. It says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. That sounds harsh, doesn't it? That sounds very strong. What does this mean, don't love the world? Don't love anything in the world? Does that mean I'm not to love nature? I'm not to love the earth? That's not what I'm saying, no. Because God created the earth. God created nature. Psalm 19 verse one says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day to day they pour forth speech. Night to night they show knowledge. You know, the heavens, nature, earth was all declared for the glory of God. We're all created for the glory of God. And so we are to love uh, the earth. We are to enjoy nature. Because as we do this, we give glory to God. Amen? I love to camp. I hope you do too. That's not what this is saying. Well, are you saying then it means don't love people? Don't love humankind? Is that what it's saying? Well, no, that's not what it's saying. Because again, God created human beings male and female. 
One verse that all of us know since Sunday school when we were kids is, for God so loved the world, right? And what he means is the people of the world. God loves humankind. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And we know the gospel is that God loves people. So we are to love people too because they're made in the image of God. They're precious in his sight. And we are to share and give the gospel to them. So it's not talking about nature or the earth. It's not talking about people or humankind. What is it talking about? Have you ever heard the phrase, the world of sports? Or the world of K-pop? Or the world of Warcraft? <laughs> or the world, right, of Marvel? We all understand when I share that, that it's not talking about a planet. There's not a world of K-pop, a planet where all the K-pop people live and we visit it. That's not what we're talking about. When we're talking about the world of something, we're talking about a system with its own activities, with its own rules, with its own personnel, with its own culture. I love the world of basketball. How many of you, you love the world of basketball, the NBA? Okay, a few of you do, just like me. I love it. I love the players in that world. I love Steph Curry. I love LeBron James. I love the history. Bill Russell just passed away recently. If you're in the world of basketball, you know who that is, and you mourn his death. But if you don't know that world, you don't know who Bill Russell is. It's just a name, right? The, we love, in the world of basketball, the playoffs and the championships. Uh, this year, the Golden State Warriors won the championship. If you're in this world, you know it. If you don't, then you don't know it, right? See, I love the whole system of the NBA. I love the culture of basketball. What this is saying in 1 John chapter 2 is, don't, when it says don't love the world, means don't love worldliness. Don't love the worldly system that is set up and opposed to God. Because that's exactly what it is. The enemy, right? The enemy uses this system to oppose God. Don't embrace the worldly culture that defies the Lord. Don't follow this wor these worldly activities that acts against God. See, this is what we're talking about when we talk about not loving the world. It's worldliness. What is in this world? Well, here's the worldview. Let's continue on in verse 16 of chapter 2. For everything in the world, okay, that Jesus just told us, or that, excuse me, that John just told of, right, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. You see, God created nature, didn't he? God created human beings, didn't he? But God didn't create this worldly system. This system is opposed to God. And the reason why we looked at this New Testament passage is because it's exactly what David the psalmist is exhorting us to say no to in the Old Testament. Do not pursue worldliness for your happiness. Do not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Worldliness will advise you to pursue happiness on your own terms. By following the lust of the eyes, do what's right in your own eyes. Live any way that you choose to live. It's your life, do it your way. Do not stand in the way of sinners. Worldliness will entice you to engage in the lust of the flesh to pursue illicit sexual pleasure by objectifying people, grasping greedy gain in order to make it big no matter who it harms. 
abusing power in order to make a name for yourself, no matter if it destroys people's lives. Do not sit in the seat of mockers. Worldliness will encourage you to resist, even rebel against God's instruction for your life. Because the pride of life will blind you from God's will and make you criticize the very wisdom and validity of God's will. It'll say, well, that's just too old-fashioned. Man, we live in the 21st century. We don't follow ancient dictates. Man, this is not the real world. Everything that uh, is being said in the Bible, man, you know, it doesn't comport to what we have to face today. Or it's just pie-in-the-sky fantasy. It's just there to, to help people. It's an opiate for the, for the masses. And you will mock and scoff and disobey biblical truth because you are worldly. You see, we see a definition of it in verse 1. It's worldliness. Now I want you to look at the digression of verse 1. Did you know Psalm chapter 1 and verse 1 is composed of three groups of threes? That might be confusing to you, but let me actually unpack this. Because I believe that the very words of God, the words of Scripture are inspired. And so we're going to look at each word. The first group of threes, we call it posture. <coughs> we see, first of all, it starts with walking in. That means strolling. It means jaunting. You're not serious about it. It's kind of aimless, but you're walking, which digresses to standing. That means loitering. That means hanging out. It's more serious now. You have a goal. And then it digresses to sitting. You're sitting in it. It means you, you're parked there, that you remain there, that you're dwelling. And this is serious. You're in that group. The second group of threes, let's look at it. And again, this is a digression. We call it position. <clears throat> we see the counsel of. That means listening to advice. You're just hearing it. You're listening to it. <clears throat> then it digresses to the way of. That means you're participating in that way. <clears throat> you're doing it by your actions. Then it digresses to seat of. You know, the seat, when we look in scripture, is the position of power and influence. Now you're teaching others. You are influential in it. You're trying to create a legacy with it. Do you see that? The third group of threes, let's look at it. I hope this isn't boring you. This is really important, okay? We see it as perspective. Starts off with wicked. That actually means crooked, means bent. It's not straight, it's a little crooked, right? It's a generic word for evil. Then we digress to sinners. It means sin that is practiced. It's engaged in sinfulness. Then we digress to actually being mockers. That means you're an expert in evil. You boast about it. You defend it. You challenge anyone that tells you otherwise. Do you see the digression? The reason why David exhorts the child of God to avoid worldliness is because it's a trap. It starts with walking in the counsel of the wicked, flirting with worldliness, strolling past those crooked ideas, listening to the world's advice in your life. And then it progresses to standing in the way of sinners. You're dating worldliness. You're hanging out with worldly practices. You're participating in the sinful experiences in your life. And then finally, before you know it, you are sitting in the actual seat of mockers. You're straight up in its family. You've joined the club. 
You're boasting about its culture. You're defending its worldview. You mock and scoff at biblical truth because it's opposed to and it challenges this idea of worldliness. Do you see how much it's a trap? And you ask yourself, you ask yourself how does a child of God who is growing in their faith get here in their lives? And the answer is, it's a gradual process, isn't it? It's step by step by step falling into worldliness. I can't count the number of times I've seen this. I've talked to people, I've counseled people, I've listened to people. I've heard people tell me that they've cheated on their spouse and now they're living in sin, they're shacked up, they're divorced, and they're unrepentant. They don't want to repent of it. They want to live this kind of lifestyle. Someone who's addicted to this destructive thing and they don't want to be out of that addiction and they want to continue in it and they want to um, continue to do that. A Christian who has become so carnal that there seems to be no spiritual life in that person. There's no faith. There's no desire to follow God. All of these people that I've discussed with you, I've seen are unrepentant. And you know there's one thing true about all of them. None of them are happy. None of them are happy. Number one, happiness denies worldliness. That a happy person, a child of God, says no to these three negatives to happiness. Now the second characteristic we want to look at is that happiness delights in something. If happiness denies something, which is worldliness, then happiness delights in something. And we're going to look at it and see what it is. First of all, let me say the happy person says yes to two positive ingredients in Psalm chapter 1. So it's not enough to say no to something negative, but in order to grow spiritually, we must say yes to something positive. We need to replace the sin with a positive discipline. So what do we say yes to? Let's look in verse 2. But whose delight is in the law of the Lord? David tells us the first ingredient to Asherah is delighting in the law of the Lord. Now you might say, well, this is a little confusing. What do you mean law? Am I supposed to delight in the law or the law of the Lord? What, the, what is this talking about? Remember, when we study scripture, we need to do something, don't we? And I've done this many times, so do it with me now, okay? This should be old hat to you, okay? Take your 21st century baseball cap, put, put your hand on your head. Can you do that right now? Thank you. Thank you so much, okay? And then take it off. Would you do that? Whether it's a Dodger cap, an Angel's cap, whether it's a Giant's cap, you should never wear a Giant's cap, okay? But you can take those off, put them away, okay? And then I want you to put on now, put this thing on your head. Would you do that? You're putting on the ancient Hebrew sudra, okay? What you're doing is you're taking off the 21st century understanding that we naturally have when we come to Scripture. We come to Scripture with what we understand, our worldview, right? What's going on in our lives in the 21st century. We're taking that off, and we're putting on the natural or the intention, right? the intention of the author at this time, in this place. Once we do this, we'll understand what this is saying. The law of the Lord is translated Torah. It's the first five books of Moses. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In David's time, the Torah was the complete word of God and the only word of God that he had. It is the first five books of the Bible. Remember, we're, we're putting on the ancient sudra, right? David didn't have wisdom literature. He didn't have Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. 
Solomon wasn't born yet. It was, he was just a glimmer in David's eye. He wasn't born yet, right? We don't have the histories of Israel. Histories are being, uh, of the kings are, are, are being done right now, so he doesn't have the histories. He doesn't have the major, the minor prophets, right? They are, they are, they'll come on the scene later. They're not here right now, right? He doesn't have the New Testament. He doesn't have Jesus the Messiah. Those are things that he prophesies about. You know, thousands of years ahead, he didn't even have this time, this in existence, right, when he was there. So as 21st century Christians, we have all 66 books of the Bible, right? But David only had the Torah, the law of God. So he is saying, listen, the word of God, what he has, the complete word is what we need to delight in. Let me show you another thing to help you to understand this. Uh, if you could put up the next slide. In Psalm chapter 19, verses 7 through 10, David, he penned these words. He talks about the law of the Lord. And included in the law of the Lord, right, he says the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commands of the Lord, the ordinances of the Lord, the exhortations of the Lord, the teachings of the Lord. What is David saying? He's saying the law of God is everything that God says. The whole counsel of God communicated us to us through the word of God. It's more precious than gold. It's sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. And we would agree with that, wouldn't we? It's just that we have all 66 books of the Bible today that is the word of God. So the law of the Lord is the word of God. And that's what we have to understand, okay? So what does it mean delighting in the law of the Lord or the word of God. What does that mean? Have you ever received a love letter? Would you raise your hand? Ever received a love letter, okay? And I'll include it, love emails, right? Love texts. Have you ever received that? Raise your hand. Oh, I feel sorry for you. Not, not many of you have gotten love letters, okay? I, I love receiving a love letter. Um, I have a picture of the first love letter that I sent to Joanne. And I've shared with you, I won't go into de in detail, but man, she was the person that, it was love at first sight, okay? I knew I was gonna marry her the moment I saw her, okay? It was love at first sight. And I remember sending this letter to her, and I remember receiving the letter back that I got from her. And I remember I treasured it. Oh my gosh, it was so important to me, right? And I believe there was a picture in there, right, of my wife, and man, I would look at that all the time, right? As if, as if it could move, right, or do something. I would, I would kiss it sometimes, right? I would love it so. You guys have done this before. I know you have, okay? You kiss it, right? Maybe your phones when you, when you have your girlfriend or boyfriend there, okay? But what does that mean? It means that you treasure it, right? I was an RA in the dorms. And back when I went to, to, to school, we didn't have text messages. And so everyone, all the guys waited at night in the lobby of our dorm room. And they would wait for the college mail to come in because that was when all their the girlfriends would send a mail to them, whether it be care packages or whatever else. And many of them, right, would be waiting for their letters. So I would see big, tall basketball players and soccer players, just men's men, athletes, be reduced to little boys when they got those letters, right? And when they came, you know what they would do? I hated that they do this. They would come up and they say, Jung, you know, last name. They would say, Jung. They would say, smell this. And I'd say, I don't want to smell it, right? Right? It was because of the perfume, all that gaudy perfume that they would put on it, right? And they'd say, smell this, man. This is for my baby, right? 
And I, I would have to smell it because I'm the RA. You know, oh, that's so great and everything. It stunk, right? But they would give it to me. Smell this, smell this. And I'd have to smell it. They would take it, put it close to their hearts. They would, they would read it. Oh, my baby loves me. You know, she called me by, you know, my, my name, honey poo or something like that. These are grown men, right? And they would be reduced to love sickness. Do you know what these men were doing? They were delighting in those love letters from their girlfriends. They would kiss it, right? Hold it close to their hearts. To them, it wasn't just some dry, boring words. It was a communication of their love relationship. Now, I want us to understand this, and it's very important, that God's word is a love letter to you. Amen? If, you're, if, if you text, it's a love text to you. If it's an email, it's a love email to you. If you're a child of God, you have received the greatest love letter anyone could ever give you. Because the omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, sovereign, the creator of all things, has expressed his love in a letter to you, a child of God. His testimony, his plans, his desires, his teachings, his blessings. He is communicating his love to you in a letter. Now, when you think about it that way, then we can, along with the psalmist, say that we delight in the law of the Lord. John Piper says this, delighting is one of the, most prof one of the profoundest emotional experiences of the human heart. That's why David is saying it this way. He is saying the way to happiness is to delight in the Lord, to delight in his communication to you. You see, uh, last week I was at a retreat and I was sharing this very idea that God's word is a love letter to us. And there was a person that came. And you know what he said to me? He said, you know, I've lived, and he was an older guy, I've lived a long time. He says, I've never seen it that way. I've never seen the Bible as a love letter. And you know what he said? I love what he said next. He said, that is a game changer to me. And you know, that's so true for all of us. Love letters from God are a game changer. Isn't it? If we see God's word as some old, dry, dusty religious rule book that we have to muster up our strength and do our duty to read, do you think we'll be happy in the Lord? We won't. We've got to see it the way that David did. We've got to see it the way that God tells us to see it, as a love letter to us. And, Davis, and David tells us to take this love letter and to also put a second ingredient to Ashrei. Verse 2, and on this law, he meditates day and night. On this law, he meditates. If this is God's love letter to you, if this is how he tells you to delight in it, then how should we treat the word of God? We need to meditate on it day and night. Now, what does it mean to meditate? And I think this is a beautiful picture. Look at the picture, okay? The Hebrew word for meditation is to moo and chew, to moo and chew. Meditating is like a cow chewing on grass, chewing slowly and muttering, moo. I don't think I'm doing it right, moo. You know, eating it over and over and over again. You know, my wife is here, so I hope I don't embarrass her, but I wanna say it this way, the older I get, the more I make noises when I eat. Actually, my wife tells me that I talk louder Anywhere I go, I'm, I'm on volume 10, it's really embarrassing to her. I'm sorry, honey, okay? But you know, when we eat, 
I even make noises. And I didn't used to do this, okay, when I was younger. But now I do it. You know, a couple days ago, I was at Wood Ranch. I was eating a tri-tip center cut. And I couldn't help but when I put that first bite into my mouth, sound like a cow. Mmm. Mmm. You know? And it embarrasses my wife. But you know what I found really interesting? My wife hates it when I make noises. But you know what I found out really interesting? Is when she eats, she makes noises too. It's just the higher. Mmm. Mmm. So both of us, we're all mmm. Mmm. We're all made, and it embarrasses Alexis now, right? Because she doesn't do it at all, right? But do you know that's the idea of what it means to meditate, to chew on it, to enjoy it, to savor it. When we read God's love letter to us, we need to savor the flavor, to enjoy the process of studying it, to delight in the uh, deliciousness of its ideas and its plans and its purposes to react on what it's communicating. We're not reading it like an SAT story, right? When we're taking the SATs, right? In SAT prep, they always tell you when you get to a word story, an English story, read it quickly. Just get the gist of it and put it down and then go to the next one. That's not what we're doing here. When we're meditating on the Word of God, it's not speed reading, right? What we're doing is we are allowing it to digest in our lives. Meditating means you don't just read it, you feed on it. You slow down and think deliberately about it. You allow the truth to digest into your soul. See, meditating on God's word forms your worldview. When you allow the nourishment to get into your system, it forms your worldview. It crystallizes the application of truth in your life. It determines your very behavior in the way that you are going to act and it brings happiness. Can I get an amen? Amen. The third characteristic is happiness describes something. Now, in my head, the beginning of uh, preparing for this message, I was gonna do all six verses. I was ready to do that. By two in the morning yesterday, I'm like, no, I'm gonna just hit three verses, okay? And even the third verse that I'm gonna hit, I'm just gonna touch on something that I think is really important. So, I'm being honest with you, this is what I shared, okay? The characteristic, that happiness describes something. One profound description of what will happen to us when we deny worldliness and we delight in God's word is verse three. And that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit. That means it's fruitful. Its leaf does not wither. That means it's strong, it's persevering, even in the midst of drought and hardship, and it prospers, it's productive. Yielding fruit, Leaf doesn't wither, and it prospers in whatever it does. Do you know that's a picture of Eshray? That's a picture of happiness. Everything that the world pursues is those things. But you know what? It doesn't attain in its obsession with being happy what it wants. But as you seek the Lord, Christian, as you pursue God, man of, and, and woman of God, you can't help but stumble over happiness. Amen? So I want to close with this. Don't pursue happiness. Pursue a love relationship with God and happiness will fall into your lap. Can I get an amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we can be happy in the midst of a world that is so, so angry, so sad, so depressed. 
that we can be lights shining in the universe about what it means to be a child of God. And we ask that this word would fill us just like it did David thousands of years ago. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hi, this is Pastor Wilson again. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If our sermons have been a blessing to you, I'd love for you to consider supporting our church and ministry. As we approach the end of the year, we're asking our church family to consider investing into a special fund that support our interns and seminarians. Renew has a vision of investing in pastors for the next generation through our internship program. And your financial partnership can help set up a young pastor or missionary to faithfully serve the Lord for the next 30 to 40 years. I often dream about what Irwin or Kevin will do for the kingdom of God through their 30s, 40s, and 60s. Our goal is to raise $50,000 over the season. Would you consider joining us? You can give through PayPal or Venmo or by sending a check. All the information is on the description section of the podcast, or you can visit our website, and your investment is tax deductible. Thank you so much for being a part of our church family. If you're ever in the Fullerton, California area, please drop by into our Sunday service. I'd love to meet you. God bless.